Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest running hiking podcast, downloaded over three quarters of a million times in 150 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 230 of the Australian Hiker Podcast. And in this week's episode, we bring you the last in a series of four on the Great Ocean Walk. And today's episode is entitled Great Ocean Walk, Reality versus Expectations. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. In this podcast episode, we discuss our pre-trip expectations for the Great Ocean Walk and compare them to the reality of the trip itself. In this episode, we discuss how the trip panned out and make some recommendations that will help you get the best out of this experience if you decide to do this walk. So with this trip, we're going to work through it in a logical sequence starting from beginning to end and talk about the things that occurred and how they panned out compared to our pre-trip expectations. So the first thing we'll look at is pre-trip accommodation and transport. Now for us, we live in Canberra and we had roughly about a 10-hour drive down to the trailhead. Well, I'll be honest, it wasn't quite the trailhead, it was a 10-hour drive. So in our case, this was actually the ending trailhead uh, at the 12 Apostles Visitor Centre. Now, we chose to drive because, in all honesty, there's, there wasn't really a lot of options. We, you know, we could have flown to Melbourne. We still would have had a, uh, a bus ride out to uh, the Twelve Apostles or some form of public transport. And really, that wasn't going to work for us. So driving our car to the end trailhead, which is the recommendation, and then getting transport back to the start of the trail at Apollo Bay Visitor Centre – really did make sense. Yeah, for us, um, if we'd done it a slightly different way, as Tim said, if we'd taken um, a plane and then some form of road travel uh, down to where we were staying uh, near the Twelve Apostles, we probably could have gotten there a few hours earlier in the day, but it would have only been a few hours, uh, having checked flights and then the, the length of travel out of Melbourne and so on. And, you know, I think for us, um, at the end of the trip, having the having our vehicle there or nearby was um, a, a pretty convenient thing. The other thing that's worthwhile mentioning is V-Line, which is the Victorian bus service that runs uh, through a lot of regional uh, uh, Victoria, uh, you know, in combination with both buses and trains, only runs a few days a week. So for us, we basically travelled down on Saturday. Uh, If we wanted to start the walk and get the bus from 12 Apostles up to Apollo Bay, we would have had to wait till Monday. Uh, And really that was a day we, while we had a day spare, it would have meant that we would have returned back to uh, home on Sunday uh, and then go back to work on Monday. So again, it did make sense. I think if you live in Victoria and you've 
you don't have a lot of time to travel, you can time it a bit better. Accommodation-wise, we stayed at the 12 Apostles Motel, and the reason we did that was it was the physically closest <laughs> uh, to the 12 Apostles. There's nothing complex uh, about that no, one. No, nothing complex about that one, uh, and it was roughly a, just on a three-kilometre walk from there. Now, what that meant is, worst case, we could have walked down to the visitor centre, got our transport to Apollo Bay, uh, and I'll talk about the transport in a moment to Apollo Bay, uh, but in in you know in our case, when we turned back up to the twelve apostles, we weren't likely to be able to get a taxi. Not many vehicles were travelling up this road, so we'd not as if we could hitchhike. So it really involved a walk up back up the road again. And we'll talk about that one too, <laughs> won't we, Tim? Yeah. <laughs> there are a couple of uh, transport options in the area now because of the time of the year. Only one of those was operating, and we'll pri- provide the link to the transport on our written write-up of this uh, of this trail. Uh, but basically, they they were quite happy to pick us up from the hotel and take us to Apollo Bay. So what it meant on, on Sunday morning, we just had to wake up, be ready uh, just after 7 o'clock uh, to get in the car. We'd have breakfast by that stage and headed off. And the other reason that staying where we did is when we contacted them, they were quite happy that we left our car there because the recommendation that we were provided beforehand was park in the uh, Apollo Bay Visitor Centre car park. Uh, they recommended we let the police know that there was an abandoned car there uh, and then come back and pick it up six days later. I'm not a fan about leaving a car in a, in a public car park for six <laughs> days. It, it tends to leave the wrong message. Not me either. So, uh, And again, I'm sure a number of the other hotels and accommodation in the area would have been happy to do the same but it is a question that's well worthwhile asking. In relation to the trip up to Apollo Bay, again, it was a taxi ride. Um, It wasn't cheap. It did cost us $200 for the two of us. Uh, So the bus certainly would have been much cheaper, but we did not have an option for a bus on the day we wanted to travel. Uh, And and it was was convenient and it was very comfortable and um, it was very clean. So, yeah, it just made it easy. So uh, unless you are going with other people and you have the luxury of having a car at each end, uh, really the best option is 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 going to be uh, either a bus if, it, if the day suits you or else the taxi and transport service. We started the walk on Sunday morning around about just after 9 o'clock and one of the things we found is the visitor centre was quite easy. There was information on the trail uh, virtually near the entrance to the visitor centre there were toilets there that were open, so we made use of those. Uh, and then we have this lovely, and it really is a spectacular trail ahead. It's almost like a piece of artwork. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and there's photos of that in uh, in the write-up and the photos of that up in previous podcasts as well. That was easy to find. Um, it would have been nice maybe to have a trail marker virtually almost at the uh, – <laughs> Go this way. Yeah, go this way, yeah. We, we were pretty sure we knew which way to go uh, and we did find a trail marker probably well, would have been about 150 metres past there. Uh, we knew we were heading along the coastline. Uh, but it was just quite – it was a bit weird because it was this very grand trail head for the beginning and then – Quite seriously, nothing until we walk through the what what essentially is a I guess a park area, a car park and a park area, and uh, you know got to one of the, the the standard arrow trail markers on the edge of that, and it was like, okay, this, well, lucky we went in the right direction, but you know, not not that we were going to 
get lost or anything. But yeah, it was it was a little bit of a surreal moment as we stood there going, okay. Now, moving on to the campsites themselves. Now, this walk is designed to be done as an eight-day walk. And if you buy the guidebook, and we'll, we'll talk more specifically about the guidebook later, it provides a series of options. It provides four-day options, five-day options, six-day, seven-day, eight-day options. So you can sort of sit there and say, how, how many days do I want to travel? Uh, where am I going to be staying? Now, this is Victoria. Free camping or wild camping isn't allowed. You're supposed to stay at a designated campsite. So for us, we booked, that was probably one of the first things we did was book the accommodation as far out as we could and made sure we, we got the availability of the site. And the other, I think, interesting thing about that is that um, I, I think, um, you know, uh, Parks Victoria uh, seem to be operating on a, uh, still on a COVID kind of arrangement, um, partly to keep people spread out, but I s- also suspect they're probably a bit short of staff um, given uh, people are still getting COVID. So even even though there are only a few people booked into or, or camping at some of the sites that uh, we were at, um, they were um, indicating that they were fully booked. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. there were lots of... Lots of uh, vacant uh, tent sites. Now, in relation to the campsites, they are a paid campsite. And for us, it was $17.40 uh, per campsite or per tent for us. So that was roughly you know, $9 per person, which is not too bad. And you know, even even with groups, groups weren't that expensive. So it's not an expensive form of accommodation. So you know, for the facilities you get, it's not a lot of money to pay for it. So I think it's pretty good value. And, and particularly at the moment when, you know, they're pretty much empty uh, because uh, they're keeping uh, the bookings low. Now, at each of the campsites, there is what they're classing as a kitchen shelter. Uh, and again, we've got photos of this in the write-up. Uh, and this is basically just a... I was going to say two-sided well, hut, maybe. Yeah, well, it's probably even a, a it's it's a hut, a squared hut with the corner taken out. Yeah, so, that's probably true. Uh, you know, it's almost like they've taken a side out, but a small section of each side. But what this means is you can sit in there, cook your meals, socialize, and if it is raining, then you can go to bed in your tent without having to sit outside and try and cook if it's raining. So it's it's really quite good in that respect. These kitchen campsites are pretty standard throughout the whole trail. So, uh, in most cases, they have two water tanks, uh, and sometimes they have one. But usually, for with each of the uh, the campsites, there's three large water tanks, and that is your water supply for the uh, the trip. There's a set of toilets. Now, we were staying in what's classed as the walk-in uh, campground, so a hikers campground. Some of the campsites had uh, were associated with uh, vehicle access as well, so you'd find that sometimes the toilet might be a bit further away because it was a shared toilet between the walk-in campground and the driving campground. But uh, you know, in all honesty, there's no way cars can get anywhere near the uh, the walk-in campground unless you've got the keys to the gate, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, it did mean that um, because you had those shared facilities when that was the case. The, uh, the hikers had a bit of a walk uh, to the toilet, so I think 100 metres I think is probably the standard length um, and there are a couple of sites that uh, had that, so uh, Blanket Bay and uh, Air River in particular. And at Air River um, there was a pretty 
steep uh, set of, I guess, timber slat steps down to um, the, the toilet block. It does make you think how serious you are in the middle of the night uh, to go to the toilet. Um, and uh, there, there were nights when I thought, no, <laughs> I'm not doing this tonight. <laughs> the other thing that's actually at the campgrounds as well is also uh, uh, it tends to be one or two low tables, if you like, uh, outside tables. So, you know, we, we certainly, uh, uh, we were lucky, but I think on a couple of occasions, we virtually camp almost right next to a table. So it means, you know, when we had lunch or were setting up, we put all our gear on that. Uh, but then we'd go and have our main meals down in the kitchen uh, uh, shelter itself. Mm-hmm. Um, what we haven't mentioned about the toilets are the views. Yes, and, and this is this is quite interesting here. Uh, in you know, not so much the the shared campgrounds where you've got <laughs> where you've got toilets, uh, but where, yeah, and, and the, where there's vehicle access, the toilets are much bigger for catering for a much larger group of people. With the walk-in campgrounds, there is a single toilet, uh, and you know, there's typically a window there. Uh, and the, the longer we spent on the trail, the better the, the views got. <laughs> uh, and in fact, the very last uh, campground, which was Devil's Kitchen, uh, so a, a last night camping, you're sitting on the toilet, you're looking out the window, and you're looking at the ocean. So yeah. you don't you, you really don't get too much better views than that from a from a toilet in an Australian campsite. Yeah, pretty spectacular, and uh, you know, watching the weather um, while you're there, um, it was it was absolutely great. So I mean, there is a bit of thought that's been put into this, um, which you know I think is is kind of a nice thing as well. One thing I'd say before we move on from the campsites is that in most cases the campsites you're walking through the campsites. You're arriving at the campsite, you camp, and then you keep on going in the same direction. There are a couple of campsites where uh, I think it's Ryan's Den and Elliot's Ridge uh, where you walk in and then you walk back out to the trail. And it might only be 150 metres, but, yeah, you're not walking. uh, Most of the others you're just walking in a straight line. You're not sort of doubling back. The final thing I'd say about the campsites is the kitchen shelters, the floors in most cases are natural. So we did this walk in late August, early September 2022. Uh, with the exception of the Devil's Kitchen uh, camp uh, campground, all the others had natural floors. It was either sandy or dirt floors. Um, and Devil's Kitchen had a, a stone, uh, loose laid stone floor, which was really good. And I think you know, certainly that would make a, an improvement to the site, having a a bit more of a solid floor to sort of um, uh, not worry about kicking up dirt. From there, we'll move on to the trail. Now, the trail tread consists of a combination of natural trail, beach, rock walking, and occasional timber and constructed trail, which is what we expected. Really, between all those, it, the trail itself is pretty good. It's easy to follow. It's you're unlikely to get lost yeah. unless you're walking with your eyes closed. Yeah, this side. is uh, this is there. Are, there are a number of technical aspects around this trail. Navigation is not one of them. <laughs> now, one negative and something we really weren't expecting on this, and I'll be fair here, the guidebook does actually mention it. Is we are, we we picked pretty much the wettest month of the year to do this walk. And we had the afternoon on day one, uh, we were walking really slowly because of the mud. 
You know, uphill, downhill, it didn't matter how good a, a pair of shoes or boots you had, it was just slippery, so you weren't moving very fast. Yeah, and it was uh, it was ankle deep. It was mostly on, I guess the worst part for me uh, was uphill on management trail. Um, uh, and, yeah, you definitely – you definitely needed your walking poles, um, and I and I think I mean just on that. I don't think I've used my poles as much on any walk uh, to the extent that I did on this one. Yeah, no, we had mud not every day, but we had so certainly sections throughout the trip. And I think this is one of the benefits of doing the walk a bit later in the year when it's not as rainy or and the weather's a bit warmer, so it dries out. But it is it is what it is. It's a natural trail. And I must admit, I'm used to sort of New South Wales where they tend to have crushed granite. It's not just soil roads. It's soil roads where there's been a base put over the top, so it's not as much of an issue. Um, so, again, I would suggest, and we will talk about what equipment to bring, uh, but, yeah, bring more socks than you think you need is probably the, the thing here. <laughs> I have to say, at the end of that first day, if I had a vehicle um, waiting at Blanket Bay, I might have got in it and I might have driven away, Tim, <laughs> and left you. <laughs> the other thing that's worthwhile mentioning, and this is probably one of the, the the main things that's worthwhile paying attention to, if you look in the guidebook, if you look online to the Parks Victoria website, they talk about decision points. Now, if someone says to you, here is a decision point, it implies that you have a decision to make. Go this there's way or that way. Yeah. Yeah, there's a choice. Now, while that was the case with some of them, uh, the decision point as you leave Blanket Bay uh, heading towards Cape Otway, which is the next campsite, uh, is not a decision point. You have no choice but to take the trail. We took it as being a decision point, and I'll, I'll be fair here. Parks Victoria do say do not take the decision points. You know, Stay to the trail, do not take the alternate routes, uh, and that's probably not a bad thing. They do it from a, a safety uh, and a, a liability perspective, but in the case of the, the decision point coming out of Blanket Bay, you do have no choice. We walked up the rock platform for half an hour. We didn't have any problem, and we got to one site that you would need to be comfortable with bouldering to get around, and and we didn't know what was on the other side of that. Yeah, and it turned out that, that it was actually um, no access at all. Um, so, you know, it was a bit curious. Uh, the other thing about the signs for the dishes decision points is they look the same. There are very small variations to the information that, that you see on the sign. And what that means is you have to read everyone and, and read everyone pretty closely. Um, uh, you know, that, that was a bit of a lesson for us on that uh, second morning of the second day. And uh, we learned that lesson. Just while we're talking about signs, as we, we mentioned the signs at the start of this episode, the trail mark was a small yellow uh, mark with a black diamond on it or black arrow on it. Um, there are also some in, interpretation signs along the way. Uh, and as well as that, there are some green signs with white writing and arrows saying <laughs> this campsite three kilometres, this, you know, this, this beach two kilometres. So, again, it's very clear about which way you go. Um, the, um, you know, it, as Jill said, it's very easy. You know, it, it's not a trail that requires navigation experience. The other sign, which is a bit weird, or not weird, but a bit unique to this trail that we haven't seen before, is a, uh, it's almost an emergency sign. So basically, if you need to someone to come and evacuate you in an emergency, 
there's a series of letters and numbers you read out to them and they will know exactly where you are. Yeah, so I thought that was really good. Um, you know, if, if you need assistance, uh, you call triple zero at a particular sign and you quote the location that you're at and uh, that, that will make lots of sense to lots of people uh, who are providing the emergency assistance. So, yeah, and I think uh, I, lost, I lost count, I thought, I thought we might have got to 40 of those. So, you know, over a, um, a six-day period, that means that they're reasonably frequent um, along the way. So I think that, that that's a pretty positive thing about the trail as well. One thing that we haven't mentioned on this, this uh, podcast is a lot of people tend to do this walk in sections. They'll do a section a weekend and then come back the next weekend and do another section. So there's a number of points along the trail where you can park your car, walk in the kilometre, kilometre and a half, uh, and then walk along to the next trail and then walk back out again. So they're designed to be done as day walks in most cases, and they're the, they're the, the they're typically where the access points into and out for emergency services if you need them. Water on the trail is one of those sort of things that um, it's when we went, water was not an issue. Uh, as we said, <laughs> water, then, water, water everywhere. There was, there's pretty much three tanks, and they look like probably, I'm guessing, thousand liters, maybe fifteen hundred liter tanks. So there's almost five thousand liters of water at each of these sites. Uh, but Parks Victoria do say it is rainwater only. They do not top them up. So if there's been a drought from November, December, January, February, and you're planning on walking in March, you need to pay attention to the water situation. Um, there were some natural water sources, but you know, not as as many as I'd like uh, to have to rely on. But certainly in the in the early parts of the season, and given this this location, they say gets anywhere between twelve and eighteen hundred millimeters of rain a year. I think you're reasonably safe in most cases, uh, but it is worthwhile checking with Parks Victoria if they've had a lot of usage or they think there's not much water there, just to be on the safe side. If you are going in December or January. Uh, when it's likely to be busy and also very hot. Mobile reception. Now, mobile reception on this trail, before we did this walk, uh, the the information said uh, limited act, limited mobile reception on this trail and typically at high points. That's pretty much about it. Uh, <laughs> it's very limited. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I, believe, I know they're just about to turn the 3G network off and, and swap it over to 4G, but... Really, in a lot of the trail, you know, at best you might be able to get a voice voice call out or a text message, and that's it. There are only a couple of occasions, I think probably three occasions, where you could get internet, um, but I know Jill had to send an email out uh, for a particular reason, and she ended up using 20% of her battery on her phone just to send one email. Yeah, so I, I actually put my phone in flight mode and turned it off, I um, most of the time I could just get one bath 3G, so it wasn't really worth the effort. And Tim had his comms anyway, so, you know, that wasn't wasn't such an issue. Now, this was with Telstra, and again, Telstra tends to have the better coverage if you're doing bushwalking in a lot of areas. Uh, I don't know what it's like with the other networks, but I assume it was probably going to be not as good. Now, in relation to the scenery, um, one of the things that did surprise us. Uh, the scenery was good. There was no doubt about that. We love getting ocean views, and you certainly got better a lot of that. Uh, we had beach walking, and again, that's that's different than uh, a lot of the walks we do. So, do enjoy doing beach walking. 
We had coastal heathland. We had uh, various eucalyptus forests. And I think overall, the thing that really did surprise us was it was almost the best way to describe this trip is each day was almost a trip within itself mm. and it had something different on offer than the next day or the day after. So it wasn't a matter of a six or an eight day walk where it's every day is exactly the same as far as the scenery. Um, every day was different. So I think that's one of the biggest pluses of this trail. Yeah, and it, and it was quite diverse. And and uh, you know, Tim's talked about the time of the year that we went. Um, you know, the other thing that that we were pleased about was that there was actually uh, still lots of flowering plants. You know, it was it was early for the season. Um, it'll be spectacular in a month or so. And the other thing that I really enjoyed was the the bird song. Um, you know, if you're a bird enthu- enthusiast, um, there are birds all the way and sometimes it just feels that they're following you, you know, they're joining you on the hike. The other thing while we're talking about the environment is the animal life. Now, I'm, I, I was almost thinking there was not a lot of animal life in this trail, but having said that, we saw lots of wallabies, but wallabies at the best of time aren't like kangaroos. They see you when they hop away. Uh, so we, you know, we, I got a, a photo of a large male, um, but that was only because he wasn't paying attention and he was eating. Uh, but in most cases, yeah, you'd see something out of your corner of your eye, you'd realise it was a wallaby and then it was gone. It was gone. So um, lots of wallabies. We heard koalas making that grunting noise that they do, but we didn't see them. And uh, couldn't record them because every time, by the time Tim got his recording out, they, they were obviously watching him and he was ready to press record and they stopped. That was quite funny. That happened a few times. The Belgian woman that we met on uh, on the trail, she said as she was coming into the area of River Campground, she saw a koala actually in the campground. So, you know, it's the sort of thing that you, it's a bit of a luck of the draw thing here. Uh, we saw echidna, echidnas along the way. Lots of holes along the side of the track and we I think it's a combination of things. I think it's, you know, by looking at the holes, there's definitely a skinny, narrow snout that's in some of them. So there's echidnas. I think there's also goannas making the holes, not wombats because they're not that big enough for these holes. They're very small holes in comparison. A goanna, which I didn't see, uh, but in, in regard to snakes, I did see one snake, which was a death adder. And uh, Jill said she saw a goanna go into the bushes. I went and had a look, and I'm always fairly circumspect when I do that, so I let my tracking pole do the leading, uh, and I did see a an open mouth and a diamond-shaped head and, and grey skin. And it, it uh, uh, As I found out later on from looking in the books, it was a common death adder. So, again, it's the sort of trail I wouldn't feel comfortable about wandering through the bushland bush bashing because there there are snakes on this trail, uh, we do this sort of cool time of the year, but I'd probably expect to see snakes, particularly during the hotter weather. And uh, just on that, uh, you know, the the weather that we had was quite variable. We had rainy days, we had windy days, we had windy and rainy days. Um, we had uh, some uh, sunny days uh, with wind, sunny days without wind. And I think, you know, that obviously would um, impact uh, the wildlife that you, you see as well. Um so, you know, it, as Tim says, it is a bit of a luck of the draw. Depends on what's happening on the day, but uh, I think you know, for for me, um, you know, if you can luck it and get some great weather, it, you you would see all sorts of wildlife. Um, you know, on those rainy days when it was really windy, 
um, and I'm thinking jo- jo- coming into Joanna Inlet um, as an example, we just had our, you know, rain gear on, rain pants, rain jackets, heads down, and we were just trying to get there. Now, the thing that for a lot of people that tends to be a, not a problem, but a bit of a culture shock is the inlet crossing. There are two inlets to cross on this trail, um, and that's the uh, Parker's Inlet from uh, we left Blanket Bay going to Cape Otway, uh, so there's a, a, a inlet there. And then the following day, uh, we stayed at Air River going to Joanna's Beach campsite, and there's another inlet. There's also a couple of small creeks, but the small creeks really are just that. They're, they're creeks and not rivers. Now, we tend to take for granted crossing inlets. We've spent a lot of time around the ocean, a lot of time around the coastline. We're comfortable with crossing inlets and we're comfortable with when not to cross inlets. But we had uh, the Belgian woman that we came across. She was a day ahead of us to park her inlet. Uh, she was by herself. She wasn't really confident and comfortable with crossing inlet and what, knowing what to look for. So she ended up backtracking, getting a lift around that, uh, and then the following day she joined up with us. And I think it's one of those things, if you have never done inlet crossing before, it's a, bit, it's a real culture shock. So for a lot of Australians, if you're doing bushwalking, you're not going anywhere near coastal inlets. And it really does, it, it really is a skill in itself to learn. Uh, so much so that we will be doing a podcast in the coming month or so uh, talking about inlet crossing. <laughs> but Parker's Inlet, um, we, uh, you know, if you look in the guidebook, they say at its worst it can be head height, and in which case you're not going to be crossing it. Now, to be head height, I think it needs a combination of factors. It needs a period of, of sustained heavy rain that's pouring a lot of river down uh, to the ocean. Uh, it needs high tides, and I'm thinking here probably a king tide where uh, the moon's got its maximum pull, uh, and you've got a storm blowing straight into the bay, pushing a lot of water. And I think you know if you actually look at the images and if you actually get there, you can see that the highest water point at this at this point is probably about 1.2 meters higher than when we crossed. Uh, and when I crossed, it was around about 80 centimetres deep. So you're, you're getting close on two metres in depth. Uh, and at that stage, the water's probably moving pretty heavily. Pretty fast, yeah. And you're not likely to be crossing it. I've also talked to hikers that have done this walk, and they said it's barely just come half, halfway up their footwear. So you can get the other extreme as well. So, again, you may have to, worst case, if you're going to do this walk and all those factors are in play, uh, you may need to think, okay, well, I'm just going to have to backtrack, walk out to the road and walk around this this site. Um, but uh, that is certainly something to consider. And as such, you need to have a tide chart with you and be aware of what the tides are. Uh, you also need to be paying attention to see what the weather conditions are. And again, if it's had weeks of, of heavy rain and really, really rough storms coming to the bay, you know that's potentially going to be an issue. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's two good points there, Tim. Um, One is the tide chart. You don't often think about taking a tide chart when you're going hiking. Um, And the other one uh, is, you know, we we had some um, wild weather. Um, It wasn't as wild as it can get. So, you know, while it was a little bit uncomfortable um, uh, at times – 
it wasn't actually that bad. So some of the images look as if, you know, it's it's pretty severe. But in that part of the world, in that part of Australia, it can get much, much, much worse. Now, the next inlet between uh, Air River and Joanna's Beach uh, was um, we did that the next day. We Realistically, we weren't going to be able to make, you know, we got there as close as we could to lowish sort of tide, but again, it wasn't as, as you know, we, we couldn't have got there any earlier than we did with without hiking in the dark. Mm. The, we, were, we were really targeting slack tide rather yeah. than low tide. <laughs> um, and one of the things that's worthwhile mentioning here is the water depth on this one was probably only around about 40 centimetres, so uh, maybe, for, more, maybe 50 at worst, so it was lower than what we had at Parker's Inlet. But... We were sitting there watching this inlet and about every fifth wave you'd get this big surge coming through and then there'd be some smaller waves which wouldn't be an issue. We picked the time where we got two waves one after the other. Uh, so we were mid-inlet when we had this big big rush of water come through. And again, it wasn't a lot of water but it was a surge of water. So basically we had to just brace ourselves and not move otherwise we would have been knocked over. Once the water retreated again, we, we swiftly moved on and it wasn't an issue. Um, but again, it's the sort of thing that come prepared for this, be aware of what your choices and your options are uh, and have a think about what it is you can do if you, uh, if you can't cross. Our option would have been to wait until low tide later on the, in the afternoon, uh, which was about another six hours, seven hours away. Um, and we certainly weren't going to stand where we were. We would have ended up having to go back up the beach into a sheltered area, get out of the wind because the wind was blowing. Uh, and I do say in the uh, in some of my my written text on this, it's the only time I've ever had wind blowing through my shoes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. um, you know, you've you've got to think, well, what am I going to do? All right, I'm just going to have to turn around and try again another five or six hours later. Yeah, in that particular place, it's actually a long walk back up the beach and we would have to have gotten off the beach. Um, there was no shelter anywhere. Um, it was blowing a gale and it was wet and uh, there was pretty much no alternative if we couldn't have um, cross that inlet. Okay, now as far as when to do this trail, really you can do this trail any month of the year uh, and that's really not a problem. But it's a matter of what you want to go through and see. For us, we chose to do it at the end of August, early September because that's when we could get holidays together. Now, we discovered after we'd picked the time that that was also the wettest period of the year. <laughs> Yay. Um, and, it and it was. I mean, you know, it probably gets, it, as I said, it gets worse than that, but, you know, it wasn't that bad really. So, you know, it was good. Yeah, we, we were getting some flowering plants, although we would have got more later on. We were getting some animal life. We would have got more if it hadn't have been raining. But what we did get was solitude on the trail. So really, you know, the first night at Blanket Bay, we had a school group of around about 10 to 12. We had another six hikers that came in and then us. The next night we met up with the Belgian woman and uh, down there there was pretty much the three of us for the rest of the trip. But in her case, she'd actually got to, that was the fourth night for her. And when we turned up, this was the first time she had actually kept, she had a campsite. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. She, she, uh, when you listen to the podcast, Tim asked her, you know, why why she did the trail and um, she read that it was popular and she was hoping to meet people yeah. <laughs> and she she only met us. 
Um, you know, but if, again, you know, school holidays, uh, Christmas holidays, I can imagine it being quite busy. And yeah, again, yeah. if if you like the crowds, that's fine. If you don't like the crowds, don't go there. Don't, don't go there. We also met, did see some whales. Um, we only saw them at a distance. My camera was not good enough to take photos of them. Um, but you know, we had we had humpback whales, fin slapping, uh, breaching, and then doing their their thing where they blow bubble nets to actually corral and 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 uh, catch yeah. fish. Yeah, and we were up high um, for most of that day watching these whales. And um, you know, to be honest, uh, that it was a, a bit of a hazard because you know we weren't watching where we were putting our feet. Um, we were just look, looking, looking sideways as we we're walking along to um, see what the whales were doing. So again, if you're looking at whales, probably um, September, October is probably going to be your better time. Uh, if you're looking at lots of wildflowers, you're probably looking at, again probably the October, September, October period again. Um, so really, it's a matter of thinking about what is it you want to get out of this trip. So again, solitude. Lots of people, whales, wildflowers. Think about what that's likely to be. You may not like the heat, so you'll want to avoid midsummer. Um, it's never going to get freezing on this trail, but it certainly can get cold. So really have a think about what it is you're trying to achieve and what sort of weather you tend to like. Personally, I like walking when it's around about, say, 15 degrees. Uh, it's a comfortable sort of temperature. You're not cold, but you're also not getting hot when you're walking. Uh, so that's why we tend to go walking at around about that uh, August, September period. There is a guidebook this track, and we have done a review of that. It really is worthwhile. I think at the, at the time of this podcast, the guidebook's around about $29. Uh, it's well worth it. Um, uh, even if you just photocopy the relevant pages to take with you to see what the elevation changes are and what it is you're seeing. But, it, you know, we just put the uh, the guidebook in a Ziploc bag and took it with us. And it still looks pretty good despite all of the wind and the rain and the mud. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it is it is benefit to the trip and it also talks about the inlets and what you need to look out for. It has a good series of things like wildlife you may see, birds, fungi, all that sort of thing. So, again, it's well worth it to help plan the trip and to do the trip. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, um, as you're sort of refreshing uh, the day before you're doing uh, the next part of the hike and uh, reading uh, reading the guidebook, um, it, it, it is pretty accurate, you know. You, you go, oh, yeah, I read about that and I read about that and I read about something else. So, you know, it, it's a pretty good uh, indicator, I think. For now, things that can help make the trip better, and this is what we picked up, and, and this is some, there's some weird things in here from our perspective. <laughs> As we said, we had mud, so we had three pairs of socks. This trail, you do need at least three pairs of socks. <laughs> Um, you know, if you're going to sleep, it's in a three a, sock trail. Yeah, and if you're going to be sleeping in a pair of socks at night time, I'd probably suggest a fourth pair. I have never had my shoes get so muddy on any walk that I've ever done anywhere. So, yeah. But it's good when you you're doing the uh, inlet crossings because you know we've discovered that uh, a, a pair of muddy shoes, a pair of muddy hikers or boots gets really, really, really clean when you're walking through the inlet. Yeah, yeah there's no doubt about that. <laughs> In hindsight, and this is something I have never done on a trail before, I'd suggest taking a pair of camp shoes just so you can let your socks and shoes dry out. Um, you know, a pair of Crocs, a pair of sandals or thongs, whatever, just so you can wander around the campsite uh, without sort of walking around in bare feet. Yeah, and I think the amount of um, beach walking there is in good weather, you, you know, you could you could 
put hiking sandals on and, um, you know, walk across the beach, use them for the inlet crossings as well. So, you know, you, you, it's not just a, a one-use thing. Definitely a, a trip where you want tracking poles. And, and, again, this is more for managing the mud. So I managed to, and the only way I can describe this, and this is definitely an Australian saying, going A over T. Uh, I was airborne on one day. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was walking with one foot on a slide slope and one on the flat and the one on the slope went sideways and I went the other way. So I, I was airborne. I was getting more my dignity than, than anything else that was hurt but because it's it okay. was soft. It's okay. We all did it. We yeah. all did it. And, um, uh, you know, uh, Tim didn't have rain pants on at the time, but when I went over, um, I had rain pants on and, you know, I've got a, a new um, – appreciation and a newfound appreciation of rain pants uh, because pretty much um, by the time they dried out uh, you know the mud disappeared and uh, I didn't have dirty pants the other thing about the mud is it actually breaks your fall <laughs> so it, it wasn't it wasn't uh, you know too too hard landing <laughs> when you were landing in the mud one of the the school group that was uh, uh, paralleling us on the first day, they all had uh, most of them were wearing shorts with long gaiters. I think the gaiters were probably more a benefit of the mud protection uh, rather than the uh, uh, than anything worrying about snakes. So again, if you're into wearing gaiters, they will keep the mud off the bottom of your your, your uh, pants and also keep your socks and shoes a bit drier if it is a muddy time of the year. Again, the water in the tanks is, they do have signs there like most national parks water tanks saying this water is unfiltered. So bring a water filter with you of some sort um, to uh, uh, make sure you've got clean water. Uh, and also bring a trowel and some toilet paper. Now, there is pretty much a toilet roughly every 10 to 11 kilometres on this trail. Uh, occasionally it might be 13 kilometres. Uh, but if you do need to go in the middle of the trail, you need something to dig a hole and to be able to bury your waste. So bring a trowel and some paper. We did not have to use that at any stage, but we had it with us just in case. Yeah, and we also had plenty of uh, toilet paper for the trip. Um, you know, we never assumed that there's going to be toilet paper at the uh, campgrounds or, or, you know, um, enough toilet paper. Um that wasn't an issue um, because of the limited numbers. Uh, there was plenty of toilet paper. We left plenty of toilet paper behind. Um, so, you know, um, I still probably would take my own reserve um, uh, just in case, um, but it was something that we didn't need. Particularly during the busier times of the year. I, I have never seen so much toilet paper in a camp toilet before. Uh, but <laughs> Which it, is an indicator that it gets busy and it gets used, I yeah. think. Yeah. But I think it's also cheaper rather than having a range you go in every two days. It's probably cheaper to put some extra rolls in there just to cover so they don't have to visit as often. So in terms of the experience overall, um, I, I really like this uh, walk. Um I think the var variety on, you know, one day to the next was uh, part of the attraction. Um, it, it was easy, easy, easy to navigate. Um, you know, we've talked about some of those technical aspects in terms of the, uh, the inlet crossing, but it was, you know, it was very enjoyable, very pleasant. And, you know, I think 
at any time of the year, it's going to be something that um, you'll get a lot of enjoyment and a lot of appreciation out of. Okay, so if you haven't already done so, listen to the previous three episodes, which was our What We Expect and then two on-trail episodes. Uh, Have a look at the write-up, which has got images and video footage uh, to show you what we saw along the trail. Uh, and to see how what we were feeling like on a, each day in, in the in the written version, uh, uh, on, on the the summary of what the, the what each day was like. Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, the end of day one was a necessarily positive one for me after all that mud, but it did get a lot better after that. <laughs> okay, that's all for us. We hope you've enjoyed this four podcast series on the Great Ocean Walk. Again, this is a good walk and is well worth doing. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.